welcome to For the Life of Me podcast, where I share musings and perspectives on how we live an authentic life, how we truly tap into that unique divine blueprint that is so completely unique and special to each one of us in the multiverse. My name is Julie Pyatt. I'm your host. Thanks so much for joining me. Julie Pyatt, also known as Trimati, is a mystic mother, musician, artist, chef, author, and healer who has lived her life immersed in devotion and expansive creativity. She is a way-shower of finding the divine in all life experiences. On For the Life of Me podcast, Srimati shares her wisdom from a multitude of life events that she has experienced as processes of alchemical transformation. She is a powerful living example of how to love ourselves more so that we can live our unique design in a full and expansive self-expression. As when we live in this frequency, we bless all life around us. What you get with Julie in all of her endeavors is a sermon or prayer which radiates the vibration of a mystic mother, an energy that comes through her essence, her words, and her music. Welcome, beloved tribe, cosmic family. It's really a joy to be tuning in again across this medium, which reaches all around planet Earth. It is really, really a privilege and a pleasure to share these precious moments of life with you on what was formerly called Divine Throughline, the new podcast format, which is called For the Life of Me. So For the Life of Me came about as I was really feeling into how I can best serve and offer the messages, the experience, and the vibration into the field. Something that is very unique to my own individual blueprint is that the most powerful way that I can share wisdom is by sharing my own very personal experience. And so this is exactly what I'm going to be doing on the second installment every month of the podcast, For the Life of Me. For the Life of Me is the name of a memoir that I am writing this year. I've actually already been working on it for many years, uh, but it's going to come to fruition and actually be published in the month of November. So I am going to be recording an excerpt from that memoir, from my own very personal life experience, every month as a means of sharing my own life with you um, and drawing you into my own life experience and what has informed my state of awareness and the lessons and tools and things that I have gleaned from this very vast experience. As human beings, we all learn from the stories that are told by our fellow community, our fellow family, our ancestors. And storytelling really is a very, very powerful method of imparting wisdom, of sharing life experience. And as we all are leading what Joseph Campbell described as the hero's journey, we all will go through a journey of life, which includes going through tests and trials and challenges. And hopefully as we emerge on the other side, 
It is our privilege and our honor and our blessing to share that experience with others coming up the life path just a little bit behind us. So I hope you'll join me for this part of my journey. Maybe grab a cup of tea, maybe get settled on the couch, wrap yourself in a warm blanket, or possibly you're on a long journey or you have a commute and I'm going to keep you company for the next hour or so as you travel between destinations. These excerpts that I'm sharing are not, of course, a final draft, but they are a draft and they are a version uh, that's pretty developed. I'll be interested to know how you feel about me sharing in this way. Please reach out to me or let me know on Instagram in the comments how you experienced um, the sharing of this information. And so here we go. The first excerpt from my memoir, it's called My Monster. Divinity and Tragedy? How do we find the divine in the immense challenges we all face incarnated in a realm where there is so much violence? In any given moment, we are experiencing loss, much of it at the hands of brutality and horrifying acts that are in no way related to anything beautiful we are seeking in our lives. I recently reflected on what was the worst experience I had endured in this lifetime, the one that almost killed me. But more importantly, I feel the one that seemed to be orchestrated by a perpetrator, a predator that unjustly stalked me and then tried to destroy me. They say that which tries to kill you makes you stronger. I hope in my case, it has made me gentler, kinder, wiser, and unapologetically devoted to myself. I'm still working on that. This is a chapter that remained unnamed and left discarded like a page at the bottom of a stack of old scripts. It feels as if it was literally another lifetime. I like to think that I have healed completely from this experience, but it's not a place that I like to revisit. So maybe there's more, more to reconcile from this nightmare that could have ruined my life. Well, maybe it's here because I'm supposed to go there just this one last time, as my son Trapper suggested at lunch yesterday. Then I can move beyond it entirely. I need to clearly state that this relationship described in this chapter is not, I repeat, not the father of my two precious sons. I don't want this energy associated with them in any way. Are we clear on this? Okay, good. Michael Jackson's Don't Stop Till You Get Enough thumped and pulsed as the vanilla smoke filled our nostrils with traces of ambiance. Dancing with my college roommates, Kim, Jane, and Susan, we played a game imitating the person to our right. One of the hilarities of life, the unique styles that overtake a human form in inspired movement 
rendered us collapsed in a heap, unable to maintain any level of containment. It was almost as if we were tripping on mushrooms. We were crying, literally dying laughing. Coy young girls in our 20s dressed to seduce some silly men. We were omniscient. They were expendable. We lied to ourselves. Sweaty and danced out, I peeled my Lauren Hutton silk shirt from my breast and sauntered up to the bar to order a grapefruit in Pernod. I had discovered Pernod, a licorice syrup-like alcohol, while living in Paris earlier that year. It was my standard cocktail, and I ordered it regularly. As I drew a big sip, sucking it through my teeth, it quenched my thirst, cooled my body, and accelerated my buzz. I positioned the cold glass at the base of my throat and closed my eyes. Ah, that's so refreshing. The deep and charming voice demanded, I am going to marry you. I shifted my eyes to the right and caught the form of a man, rail thin in a Bowie modern love stance, pristinely dressed in an Italian suit as if he had a mission. As I locked on to his older eyes, I flashed a mildly amused smile and looked away. And starting to rise and over my shoulder, dismissed him. I'm not even attracted to you. I put down my drink on the bar, picked up my purse, and disappeared into the crowd. This was the catalyzing event, the very moment that began a relationship that would become my hell off and on for seven years of my life. I would end up walking down the aisle in Malibu on a gorgeous spring day, knowing with each step that this would not last. I had reached an impasse, and I was simply running this race car into the wall so that I could explode this karma into a billion bits and finally be done with it. He was driving a cream Cadillac with a license plate that read, Mr. Dude. I climbed in and pulled the heavy door shut. Smell of car leather. Cream. Fashionably pimpy. Jane was going home with some random guy she met. Susan and Kim had left hours before. Are you sure you aren't coming home with me, Jane? Are you sure? Look at me. She waved me off, and I was without a ride home. We pulled into a local diner to get some end-of-the-night eggs and toast. I started pounding water, dreading the severe hangover that was awaiting me in the morning. Dropped off without incident, he was mildly memorable, maybe from a wealthy family, looked good in a suit, funny humor, but I wasn't attracted to him at all. Nice he gave me a lift home, though. Where was Jane? I hope she was okay, but knew in the morning she would regret yet another empty one-nighter. I had had more than my share. I wasn't judging. The next day, he called me four times. My long-distance boyfriend, who had been my Siamese twin in the best way, was saving money. He was a sensible Jew, his words. To his detriment, 
So he called me diligently once a week without fail. Monster called every hour. Soon the presence of this completely undesirable man had found a place in my life. He had all but moved in, involving himself in all aspects of my existence. He started sending me gifts. I sent them back. Resist. I'm not into him. Flowers delivered, and I told him, stop. He exploded on the phone. Wow, I hadn't seen that before. He hung up on me. Then he called, begging for forgiveness with jokes and humor. I refused his calls. He called more. I unplugged the phone and even put it in a drawer. I would not be manipulated by this boy child. This behavior was entirely unacceptable to me. Seriously, what a fucking child. I would not be spoken to or hung up on ever. Until I started to lose my perspective. He slithered around my neck like a boa constrictor and slowly started to squeeze. It was a soft kill method happening subtly without my noticing until I was trapped. Methodically, after attending a rock concert together, he screamed at me and accused me of toying with him. He challenged my motives and argued that there was a true love that was waiting for us to welcome into our lives and that I knew it. I needed to admit it and stop toying with him. This life was ours, and deep down, I wanted this. Stop bullshitting and step into our destiny. He convinced me that I loved him. Was I brave enough to let go of the oh-so-ordinary boyfriend I had loved for four years and step into the life he was offering me? Insecure, confused, and 23. I felt ambushed and completely spun. Monster was the manager of a top music act that was becoming a world phenomenon. For nearly a year, he had sent me and my ASU posse tickets and backstage passes to every act that passed through Tempe, Arizona. During that year, we saw Elton John, Bruce Springsteen, Tina Turner, Tears for Fears, David Bowie, and Yes. A shadow musician I had wanted to sing since the age of six. In fact, I knew myself to be a singer. One Christmas season, I woke up in the first grade with a bad case of the flu. I hid it from my mother and instead went to school, dressed and ready for the program. I finally couldn't stand and had to be taken to the nurse's office. Laying on that bed, defeated and reconciled, I took my music teacher's hand and delivered the bad news. You're going to have to go on without me, I told her. I could see the adoration, love, and amusement in her face. Out of the mouths of babes. This was a big clue for me, but I wouldn't really get it until much, much later in my life. This shadow aspect of my divine design was the hook that dragged me into a life of hell. I was completely taken with all the musicians. Anyone who could play or sing music was considered a god to me, and everything else couldn't get near it. 
I was worshiping the music outside of me, feeling vacant and disconnected from this frequency that was really a part of me. I had become a gold digger, basically making an intellectual decision to try to love someone because of their position and the proximity it could give me to something I was lacking inside. I was using him, and I was letting him use me. I never loved him. Still, I left my dear, precious love, my boyfriend in college for four years, and for my entire life, my boyfriend will never forgive me for that pain that I caused. It made no sense, and it was completely dishonoring to the true, pure love that I had shared with this gorgeous architecture student for four years. Don was an architecture student, and he loved me completely. We stayed in his apartment for days on end, making love only stopping to order in Chinese from time to time. Literally three days in a row, we would be sequestered. Our friends were astounded and I earned a nickname that I can't repeat from my French friend, Sophie. I have never written that name down, nor told anyone outside of my girlfriend, Posse, as it is gross. They were obviously just jealous. Seriously, what is better than sex for days when you're in your 20s and in love? Nothing? Yeah, I know. After graduating from college, I moved to Los Angeles and moved in with Monster. He lived on Woodrow Wilson Drive in a house on stilts that hovered over an expansive canyon. I would come to call it the haunted house. In the years to come, Monster sat in a desk on a raised platform overlooking the A-frame living room, rolling calls on an old-school black phone, arguing for grand pianos and better lighting on the buses for his acts. About once a week, the temper would explode and the phone would slam down and he would be frowning and brooding. He told me his behavior was justified and this was what a powerful man looked like. And that was what it took to make it in the big city. This is what you get, baby. Dig? He adored me and cherished me like a fragile possession, selecting my clothes and my hairstyles. He convinced me to cut my hair short twice in the span of our seven-year relationship. I had no purpose other than serving him. He taught me the right way to clean, wiping the sink in such a way, and critiqued every meal I ever prepared for him. Use less salt and more pepper next time. He whispered that I was the only one he had ever loved and that he couldn't live without me. I was his princess, and did I want to come to the top with him? The first time the monster appeared in full form, I was paralyzed in fear. It likely came on the heels of a question I asked him about his interaction with another woman. I was likely feeling jealous, and I wanted to know if he had cheated on me. I was certainly heated and demanding to know, or maybe I was hurt and asked as calmly as I could. Later, he would tell me that I had caused it. I made him a monster. It was my fault. 
He flew into a rage where he was in a clear blackout. I remember being choked and pressed up against the wall by my neck, my feet off the floor. He broke a frame drawing that I loved, a gift from my architecture boyfriend. He then handed me a broom and screamed at me to clean up the mess as he watched, standing over me. He spit on me, slapped me, punched me, and shoved me to the ground. The rage would take on a life of its own, and if I did nothing, it wouldn't stop. If I hit back or tried to defend myself, it would rage on. I found nothing I could do would make it stop until it had finally exhausted itself. I would find myself on the floor unable to move, lifeless and defeated. He would begin to cry and cry, apologizing for hurting me. He would beg me to forgive him. I would be lying on the ground, surveying the field and my options for escape. How can I get to my keys and my car? I would have to wait for tomorrow, leave while he was out at a meeting. I could move to my sister's. How will I ever tell my parents about this? How could I? I was lying in an alternate reality, unable to comprehend how I came to be in this situation. My parents had been married for many, many years. I had never seen this behavior in my lifetime. I was shattered, ashamed, and the next morning I wanted it to go away. I denied its very existence and became once again his princess. The place at the other extreme where I could be adored for a while until the next time the monster would call. This went on for years. A few times the neighbors came over and knocked on the door. This would get him out of the cycle and he would calm down. Maybe they saved my life in those times. I started going to therapy with a student therapist for $12 a session. Her name was Mary Lee. The first time I showed up at therapy, I asked her if I could drink a beer and smoke a cigarette during our appointment. I think she actually let me have the beer. Every time I left her, she would say very clearly to me, Remember, he can kill you. You must understand this can happen. I felt disconnected from this reality. Even in his rage, I saw his complete immaturity. He was a lost boy fighting for his life. He had no real power or strength. He was weak and sad. We tried couples therapy once. He ended up exploding and screaming at therapist and telling her to go fuck herself. The beast couldn't hold it together, even for therapy. She was so rattled. It was more than she bargained for, I'm sure. And a deep initiation into the imbalanced emotional landscape of abusers. Still, she bravely held a space for me. And even though I didn't regard it with the same dramatic intensity, I appreciated her presence while I figured this thing out. 
In order to survive the memory of this period of my life, I have found the hilarity in the countless scenes of debased human behavior. Crazy funny, only funny now because I escaped. In the wake of abusive rage, I would find a box perfectly tied with a ribbon that comes from only the finest lingerie shops, where women, and in my case, men, acquire French lace and Italian satin to accent and punctuate the sacrifice of myself to my abuser. I was sleeping with the enemy. A year into my relationship, my vagina started to close. Every time I had sex with him, even though I was consenting in my mind, I felt raped and violated. Everything about him repulsed me, and yet I offered my sacred body for sacrifice repeatedly. Out of survival, because I was not protecting my body, my body started morphine to protect herself. There was a visit to a male gynecologist who suggested that prior to sex, the monster should manually open the portal. This was considered a normal medical remedy to the repulsion my body felt for her abuser. No emotional health or signs that something was wrong was considered. Like a vehicle or receptacle, the prescription for the shutdown was to force the opening like using a wrench or boring tool. My 56-year-old self bleeds for my 23-year-old being who couldn't love herself enough to put her needs before a man. So deep was the indoctrination that everything about being a fully realized woman had to do with being a coveted object for a man. So vast was the chasm from the love of my own father. My natural sexuality sought a channel for its expression But without creativity as a container, it found its way through lower base means. The most profound thing Mary Lee, my student therapist, said to me was, Who died and made you Jesus? The romance and sickness of I will die without you, you complete me. You're the only one I've ever loved. It's only you and we are the only ones made for each other had played into my gaping wound of wanting to be that irreplaceable, magnificent one, the eternal ache your lover will die for. What I had not understood is that if someone is worthy of my love, then they should be loved by many. They should be many, many options for love relationships, friendships, and collaborations. If one is lovable, then there are many ways available to them to experience love. I was martyring myself playing a role that had been superimposed on women for thousands of years. I was every woman. In some years, I would find the strength and support to leave him. He would come to my work and stand outside the glass door waiting for me to walk to the parking garage. He was defeated humble, frail, and begging for my return. I resisted his pleading and stayed with my sister. He would wait on the steps outside her apartment and whisper through the window slats, Vicky, I love her. Please make her speak to me. Let me in, please. 
He called my best friends and managed to convince them that he was truly sorry. They felt sorry for him. They asked me to consider forgiveness. He even called my own father and somehow managed to get his blessing to marry me. How hard did he hit you? My mother asked me once. The question seared my flesh as if to say there was a level of violence that would actually classify it as abuse. The biggest pain was that I had to process the emotional humiliation and degradation of being slapped in the face. This ranks high in the pain arena. There is plenty of pain in that, and we may not really ever recover from it, no matter how far we rise. So for a period of seven years, I was in various stages of this living hell. I was even in a relationship with someone else for over a year. Sam was a super nice guy, and it was healing to spend time with him. He helped me more than I have really recognized. He left me for my friend who came with us on a date. They fell in love and got married. I was upset, but really only because my ego was bruised, and in a court of law, it was true that I was betrayed. But I was never marrying Sam, and our time was limited. It's a beautiful thing that they found each other, and it was right for me to let them have their life together. I met an eligible doctor at a club downtown. He was very handsome and had a big house in the hills of Brentwood. I was hopeful for this relationship, but soon found he had interest in a threesome with my friend Kim, who was visiting. One time when I arrived at his home for dinner, there was some super loud, very violent show on TV blaring. It creeped me out. Something was not right, and I felt like he had some weird, violent sex fetish. I ran into Monster over the holidays. I was single and lonely, and he was there still proclaiming his love for me. He had spent two full years in therapy and felt himself to be healed. He wanted me to work on my jealousy, which I brought into therapy for review. My therapist explained to me that I was not jealous, but sometimes may feel jealousy in the presence of intimate gestures to other women. We met for some shopping in Beverly Hills at his office. He pulled out a ring. It was early December. I said yes. It's true that he never physically hit me again, but the abuse was ever-present, just now emotional and harder to name. I developed a rare illness that came in the form of ulcers inside my bladder. I had exploratory surgery, and they took pictures of the lesions. They prescribed a very fatty diet of meat, milk, and cheese. I knew that my body was talking to me again, and that she would heal when I left this relationship. I was put on antidepressants and prepared to quit my job in the garment industry so I could rest and heal. Monster didn't want me to quit, as I was making a good salary. I convinced him to let me get my real estate license, as then at least I could sleep and get some more rest. I worked straight through for two months and completed real estate school. 
Soon after, I received a call from my then sister-in-law insisting that I call this man named Lou Pyatt. Lou was the COO of a huge real estate company, and he was expecting my call. She had cornered him at the sports club LA and asked him to meet with me. Annoyed by her certain imposition on this man and inappropriate behavior, I argued that I didn't even have my license yet and this meeting was premature. Call him today, she demanded. He's expecting you. I called Lou Pyatt sometime in early February. I was surprised that it was his direct line, and he politely offered me two choices for a meeting. I have Monday dinner or Wednesday breakfast open. I said, let's meet Wednesday for breakfast. As I wrote it down on my calendar, I paused for a moment, noticing the date was February 14th. This meeting was the moment that my seven-year hell came to completion. Lou had become one of the greatest loves of my life, the mentor of my creativity, and the father of my two boys, Tyler and Trapper. It was a 10-year love affair, literally of the ages, one that changed the trajectory of my life forever. I would have a nightmare for years after I left Monster where he would be attached to my leg and I would be trying to get him off of me. I don't love you. Leave me alone. I hated that feeling more than anything in the world. During all of those years of a karmic hell that marked a developmental part of my life, I truly learned the error in putting someone before me. I had a spiritual perspective that he needed help. He loved me so much that I was not able to choose myself completely with the authority of my being. This sickness of thinking that putting another before yourself is spiritual is something that I had to unravel. Some years later, I saw him on the street And in the same month, particular people from the time I had spent with him returned into my life. I made no effort to create connections, instead watching them come and go. I am complete with this karma, and there is no reason to ever see him again. In a dreamscape, I did meet him. I forgave him, and I have forgiven myself. More specifically, I accepted my role in this experience as the universal creator being that I am. I ordered this experience in collaboration with him for purposes of my mastery and evolution. It took me many, many years to get to the point of accepting responsibility for my part. The suffering was immense, the brutality unjust, and yet I was not free until I was able to take responsibility as a powerful creator. I can't say at this point that I thank him. It still stings too much, but I have found a power in this experience And I know that it has made me who I am. When I remember back on this period of my life, I recognize it 
as a karmic experience that I transcended and experienced as a part of my mastery. I have not only survived, I have transcended and become more authentically me. And there you have it, the first installment from my memoir, For the Life of Me. Please go to my website, juliepyatt.com, to pre-order your copy. Um, Also, please check out the Water Tiger community. You can subscribe and join my tribe, my community, as we commune together every month. I'm offering a monthly topic, a monthly meditation, And when you subscribe to the community, there is a form you can send in your questions and I will answer personal questions during our community time. More importantly than ever before, this is the moment that we reclaim all that is our power, all that is our divine, unique blueprint. Life is full of many colors of experience and by using a divine perspective, We can truly alchemize these experiences, no matter how horrible they are. Um, And we can transcend them and use them in the becoming of the masters that are inside each one of us. So I hope that you have found this inspiring, thought-provoking, and it has given you some insights, questions, or windows into your own life experience, possibly those around you. In addition to the Water Tiger community, you can still donate and support the show at Patreon. I hope that you will explore my entire website. Uh, Specifically, I have a new music project called Shriya, a collaboration with my soul sister, the beautiful Amber Rhea, from Malta. She's a temple singer. We have memory of singing together in another timeline. We have joined together and created a tri-wave soul communication. It's a sound bath. Um, It is a healing technique and it is offered on the site. So check it out, download it, and experience a transformation of real unity, intelligence, and love enveloping all aspects of your being. If you'd like to work with me personally, please check out my personal session page. I think it's called Work With Me, actually, at juliepyatt.com. And also um, check out my retreats. I want to mention I am doing a mastery retreat on the island of Gozo. The dates are June 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. There are only nine spots available for that trip. I will be um, posting that on Instagram and sending out information on that soon. Uh, If you are interested in the Mastery Retreat, go ahead and email me at srimatimusic at gmail.com. So not to worry as we're in this integration of all parts of ourselves, Uh, Although I am using Julie Pyatt as the overarching name for my rebrand and also uh, for my author name, I will still be using Srimati in my healing work and also for my music offerings. 
So uh, I think that's it for this month, you guys. I'm looking forward to communing with you in the community. So I hope to see you in Water Tiger. And I hope to hold space for all of you to really embody all of who you are. It was vulnerable reading some of that to you today. Um, but I think that there is a powerful place for it. And I hope that you found it transformative. And so until next time, I'm sending you all of my love and all of my blessings for the remembrance of all parts of yourself. And may you love and care and steward and be a guardian to your own being as your primary cause, primary mission. Until next week, I'm sending you blessings and may grace and beauty surround us all. Namaste. Join the Water Tiger community for monthly sacred content, including offerings on current topics, Ask Three Anything, and a healing, meditation, or expansion technique. Download Julie's new music and sound healing experience. Sriya is the spontaneous journey of two voices that become many. Formed with deep intention and devotion to song as a universal language, the flow takes singers Srimati and Rhea on a unique adventure where voices begin in individuality, harmoniously answering the call, traveling into the unknown where in a field of sound they become one interchangeably. As the many voices create a sound bath of nourishment, where the tones communicate with the self and nature throughout the multiverse, the listener has the invitation to sing along and add their tones to this offering or simply allow their release into the embrace of the Cosmic Mother. Join Srimati on retreat this June on the island of Gozo. This exclusive mastery shamanic experience is limited to nine people. If you have interest, click on the retreat page for details. Then send an email to srimatimusic at gmail.com to request an application. Srimati is available for limited private sessions. You can schedule an appointment and find more information at juliepyat.com. Click on Work With Me. Pre-order Julie's memoir for the life of me. Find sample chapters and info at juliepyat.com and click on Books. For all these offerings in addition to Julie's cookbooks and music, go to juliepyat.com. If you are feeling some healing and experience some support or expansion from this content, please donate and support the show. Go to patreon.com backslash srimati 